90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. The weather's been, you know, 30 degrees, 80 degrees. It's pretty sweet here. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. And I'm really glad that, uh, yeah, I didn't get all excited and plant everything because it got down to 27 the other night. So, and then it was, you know, supposed to be 85 tomorrow or something. So it's been uh, chaotic here. As it does in Oklahoma. <laughs> exactly. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I think you guys get to feel a little bit of it too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We do. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And so I've actually got to play with a project uh, for a, a pool that wanted temperature sensors in the pool online. Oh, okay. On their website, so you could see what the air temperature and what the water temperature was. Mm -hmm. And it was a great chance to play more uh, with Amazon Web Services. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was that was a lot of fun in a non-traditional meteorological Internet of Things data <laughs> application. All I can think of is, like, what, what's the d density of sensors? Like, uh, do you really want to know what the temperature is in the pool when someone swims by and pees or what? Yeah, we're not making the pee locator. <laughs> okay, uh, great. <laughs> Just making sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... Um, that's... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's really funny. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, there's a startup in there somewhere. There but... really is. <laughs> exactly like... I'd like to say that it's because I have kids that I think like this, but no, I'd be thinking like that anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was a fun little project and getting some more experience with uh, Amazon Web Services. So I think the next thing I'm going to tackle is something to display on our electronic magic mirror if our garage is open or closed so we don't have to come back downstairs at night and check it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Have you seen Wally? -E? You know, are you going to turn into one of those people just float around on a <laughs> on a chair <laughs> hopefully right is that your answer <laughs> no i haven't seen the movie actually oh, okay so. yeah you should do that that sounds like something that would happen there <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what else has been up in your world uh well speaking of pools um i've been starting to ramp up for summer as well and i've been thinking about field camp and that's kind of what inspired this week's show because you know i'm starting to do all of our projects and get everything in line. And I started thinking about the Morrison formation and why everyone's so obsessed with it. And so for students that listen to our show, this is this is your perk. Uh, <laughs> no, turn it off now. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, I remember that um, when I was at field camp a couple years ago, we talked about the fountain formation, which is one of my favorite rock formations, which is a hysterically nerdy thing to say. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, I know a lot of people are really obsessed with the Morris, and I don't really like it, but I have a personal grudge against it, which we can get into at another time. But lots of people like it, so I figured we could talk about why. Yeah, the Morrison is really pretty cool. It's, I mean, you can find it in the town of Morrison. That's what it's named for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about Southern Colorado here. Right. And actually, the Morrison's all over. Um, we'll focus in the area just because that's what I'm familiar with. But um, it's all over the West. And anytime you go out West and you see this really colorful, you know, red and green striped formation, it's a good bet that you can say that is the Morrison formation. Right. And as you said, this is famous for a lot of 
fossils and dinos, and that's why people like it. Exactly. Because <laughs> um, everyone loves dinosaurs, right? <laughs> so right. <laughs> it's got dinosaurs in it. That means we're talking about the Jurassic. So the Morrison is Kimmeridgian in age, um, which means it's about 156, 146 million years old. That's the upper Jurassic. So right getting into the wheelhouse of the dinos. So when you get into these sub-ages, like Kimmeridgian, <laughs> I really just think of the XKCD, where they said when you get into the fine enough geologic timescale age names, you can just take a, any dog breed name, and this is in the upper Pomeranian, and nobody knows all of the little minor divisions by heart. Oh, it's so true. Uh, actually, the <laughs> the students next door to me have that XKCD comic on their door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the Kimmeridgian's kind of a famous one. I'm going to go with that because that's why I put it in there because I've dealt with a lot of Kimmeridgian age rocks, so maybe other people have too. But if you want to get, you know, lay person about it, you can say Upper Jurassic. <laughs> right. So I mean, it is towards the end of the Jurassic period, which is one of the reasons it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's very fossil rich. Right. Exactly. Time so period anyway. Yes. Um, it's not... This was a time when Earth was really warm and stuff was super nice to live in basically all over you know there wasn't um any high altitude well there was basically no evidence for glaciers at this time and so that's when you get a lot of proliferation of life so it's not just dinosaurs that make the morrison famous but there's also trackways which are what we call groups of you know dinosaur footprints or even say pterosaurs you can see pterosaur trackways and there's also eggs and even embryos of some dinosaurs that are preserved in the Morrison, and then most importantly, gastroliths. And you can't forget coprolite. <laughs> yes. So, uh, <laughs> lots of poop, which is what coprolite is, <laughs> and then uh, gastroliths, which are basically dinosaur gizzard stones. Um, those are really super exciting to find, and you will not see a geologist get so excited as when they found what they know is a gastrolith. <laughs> I mean, they're generally pretty smooth and polished, right? Right, exactly. And so a lot of the Morrison, which we'll talk about here in a minute, is um, sort of this mudstone. And so when you find a rock that's like really round and really polished in the middle of a whole bunch of mud, it didn't get there from a river. What it got there from was a dinosaur dying, and that's the remains of his gizzard stones, or a dinosaur puking it up, and that's the remains of the gizzard stone. So, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so if we go back into the upper jurassic uh this is when pangea was breaking up into laurasia and gondwana and right. surprisingly enough uh we we being the u.s you know, north america uh, we're at about the same latitude that we are now Right. Um, so you see the Morrison throughout the U.S. and Canada, and obviously that's what we're going to focus here. Um, but the continental configuration in the late Jurassic was pretty familiar, especially for those of us in the Western Hemisphere. It, it looks pretty, pretty similar to what we got today, right? Um, except for that whole fact that it wasn't very cold, right? So pretty similar to what we got today. It was pretty warm, maybe even a little bit sort of arid in some environments. 
And that's where we get these Morrison deposits all over, like I said, the Western US and Canada. It's not called the Morrison in Canada, but there is an equivalent upper Jurassic unit there. Um, but besides us looking like we were today, we had some really cool plate tectonics going on at that time related to that breakup of Pangaea. Right. So this is where we had an orogeny happening. So the Nevadan orogeny. Right. And so what the Nevadan orogeny did, which there's a whole bunch of orogenies out west, if you do any geology, you know, on the western side of North America, as you know, too, there's so much, <laughs> so much has happened. <laughs> and the east doesn't get totally left out either. But... It doesn't, but whatever. Nobody cares about the Appalachians. They're old and washed <laughs> up, right? Um, <laughs> so the Nevada neurogeny was when we were subducting an ocean plate underneath the North American plate. And what it did was it created the series of island arcs. So these volcanoes that are all in a chain um, along that ocean plate. And so we subducted that. And eventually, all those island arcs that were created got accreted onto the western side of North America. So they just sort of scraped off the ocean plate yeah. as it was subducting. <laughs> right. And so this happened a lot. And this is what makes the the reconstruction of the western part of the U.S. very difficult. is because you have a whole lot of these exotic terrains or island arcs accreting on there. So we make all this crust and then we kind of scrape it off and weld it onto the continent. But as we do that and we're subducting, this is an orogenic event. So we're building up some mountains. And the mountains that we built during the Nevadan are still there. Um, what's the Klamath Range in Northern California and along the Pacific Northwest and then the Sierra Nevadas as well were built by the Nevada orogeny. Right. And so when we're pushing up these mountains, so we're buckling crust, it creates something called a back art basin, which is a term that gets thrown around a lot. <laughs> yes yes it does <laughs> um and so when you build up something you're making it higher you got to make a hole somewhere right it's sort of the you know the whole conservation of whatever you're building up crust you've got to make a hole for it and this is sort of the back arc basin really and it's just that you've crunched up these mountains and then out further east or what we call the back arc area we make this big hole and those holes as they tend to do over geologic time fill up with sediment and <laughs> mud you know very fine sediment you said the morrison was a mudstone that is where the morrison was born was filling in this big hole because some stuff scraped off of a subducting oceanic plate on the west coast exactly um and this big hole is it creates its own drainage basin, right? And so that's what a lot of this area was because this Morrison Basin, it was very uh, long and it stretched sort of along where the Rocky Mountains are today, kind of in that area. So all the way up into Canada, all the way down into New Mexico was this Morrison Basin. And that's where you find the Morrison still today. So the Morrison was probably a lot thicker, right? Obviously there's probably been some erosion, um, but you still find it there, and then you find it further east, too, where it's probably underneath a whole bunch of layers that came after the Jurassic. So that basin was quite large. Well, and you mentioned the Rockies, 
And you might be thinking, well, Sierra Nevadas, Rockies, where exactly did this fill in? You have to remember, this was almost exactly 100 million years before the Laramide Orogeny that built the Rockies. Right, exactly. So we had an old Rocky Mountain, which is very obviously named the Ancestral Rocky Mountains. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, by the Jurassic, those were probably pretty much gone and they filled up a hole that they had made when they were formed. Um, and so, right. So the area of the Rockies is now this big alluvial plain and these channels. So these sandstones and then lake deposits, which are pretty muddy and then alluvial plains and floodplain deposits with lots of paleosols, which are ancient horizons of soil. Those all make up the Morrison. And it would have been a great time to invest in Colorado real estate. Amen. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was not a very appealing or gorgeous place at that time. No, no, it wasn't. And these rocks that make up the Morrison, I mean, they're fantastic now. They're super great to look at, but you're exactly right. It seems like a really kind of, I don't know, it seems really like gross and steamy to me. Like there's all these just plains of mudstones and stuff and you have to remember during this time the vegetation looked a lot different too and so there aren't any angiosperms or like flowering plants and a lot of the flowering trees that we have today there's a lot of uh conifers and a lot of real big those big horsetail grasses which are tiny now but really big back then and all that stuff was sort of just right along these lakes and rivers and mudstone was obviously once mud, and by the fact that there are trackways preserved, it was probably pretty squishy in most places. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, um, I mean, there are often times where you get to these large dinosaur footprints where then uh, under them it gets eroded out. Maybe there's a road cut or something, and then under it erodes, and you see a casting of the footprint because it was this soft, goopy, clay-type material. Right, exactly. And because of the, you know, it was really muddy over large areas like that. And when we say large areas, I mean, the outcrops of the Morrison today cover over one and a half million square kilometers. That's a lot of mud. Yeah, <laughs> it is a lot of mud. <laughs> and in most of these places, I mean, it can get up to 200 meters thick. So that's even more mud. And we said, you know, these were where the Rockies were, but they, they stretch as far over. We have some Morrison in the Oklahoma and Texas panhandles. Actually, uh, one of the students who is going to be a TA at our field camp this year works on looking at trees from Morrison time. And he's found some what he thinks are the first instances of the specific type of tree in the Morrison formation over here in Oklahoma. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. And so if you're close to, uh, let's see, so Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska even, Mm -hmm. uh, you're probably within driving distance of going to see the Morrison yourself. And when you get there, you'll see, you said this banded. So it's, yeah, it's a red and green sort of striped, muddy, fine-grained rock. Right. And I mean, the red and green has to do with the oxidizing and reducing environments associated with, you know, whether they were underwater, not underwater at that time. And you'll get really big channels within the Morrison, too, which we kind of forget. So you can get really big sandy units. And then you can also get some limestone units that are lacustrine, um, so big lakes. 
in the Morrison as well. And the big deal about all this, why do you care, is because this is where all the life was. So we just talked about the plants were near where the water was. And so if the plants were there, then that's where the food is for all the dinosaurs. Um, you get plant-eating dinosaurs, but then the plant-eating dinosaurs themselves are food for carnivores. And there you go. Right. And so there's a lot of plants a lot of animals, they don't get too far apart from each other. And so there are therefore a lot of fossils that you can go find here. And it's something that you take students to at field camp. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Morrison is in all of our mapping areas, really. Um, and plus, you go to cool places. Last year, I know that they went to the Dinosaur Museum in Morrison, and then they also mapped the Morrison Formation outside of Morrison, Colorado. And it's a really interesting time period to think about those environments of deposition like that. But the whole food web association, it makes total sense, right? You know, plants are near the water, dinosaurs that eat the plants are near the water, then dinosaurs that eat dinosaurs are near the water. Um, and so those specific areas just make it a hotbed for all these fossils. But like you said, it's not just dinosaur fossils, there's lots of mud. And so you get lots of little small reptiles too. And those are exciting crocodiles, and then you get a lot of pterosaurs and even monotremes that were around in the Jurassic. Wow, yeah, so there's quite a bit there, and we really have uh, known about this for quite a while. So 1877 is when the first, in quote, dinosaur fossils <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, were found in the Morrison. Right. Um, and so that's that was near Morrison, found by Arthur Lakes, and that's why it got called the Morrison. And we say found, because, you know, I'm sure people found these before the 1800s. But this time right. period is actually really interesting in geologic history, um, because the finding of those bones around the late 1800s began what is known as the Great Dinosaur Rush of the West, and the Morrison itself played a large part in the Bone Wars. Um, there have been a couple of books about this. All right, so this represents like the ultimate of nerd fights, right? <laughs> I always joke about that at conferences, but the Bone Wars really were. Yeah, so it's the two kind of top distinguished paleontologists of that time fighting over who can find the most and coolest bones. <laughs> So, you know, basically like paleontology now, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, this is a big deal. And so I'm, I'm sure people who listen to us have read about this or know about it too. This is probably its own show at least. And But the Bone Wars were between Othniel Marsh, who was from Yale, and then Edward Trinker Cope, who was from the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. And so these two academics were really into going out and trying to find the dinosaurs as fast as they could. And there's a lot of hiding of certain, you know, fossil localities, which is still a thing. Um, both of these guys have dinosaurs named after them, right? But the deal was you wanted to go out west and make friends with people out there who had Morrison outcrops on their land, because then you could have an exclusive relationship and maybe find something cool. Right. So one of the places that everybody found a lot of these uh, is Garden Park, which is actually just north of Canyon City, where the OU Field Camp is. Exactly. So uh, this is one of those 
things as why besides mapping the Morrison Formation, while why Canyon City is sort of a hotbed for this area. And so if we talk about the Bone Wars, which I'm sure we will sometime soon since it's been on my mind, um, Garden Park comes into play and it's just this area just north of Canyon City. And this is where there was this large outcropping of Morrison, but most importantly, it's really the, it's really right around the the channels, the river channels that you find the dinosaurs. So the Morrison in most places is this big muddy area. And so sometimes you will get fossils there, but more often in the mud, you just get the trackways. So the evidence that dinosaurs were there, the actual bones are almost exclusively found near the sands of the Morrison. And so there was clearly a very large river that went through this area during the late Jurassic. And so in this Garden Park area, just north of Canyon City, tons and tons of dinosaur bones, tons of new species were discovered there. And this was in the late 1800s as well. So while people were looking north near Denver and the town of Morrison, people are also there in southern Colorado, and they were pulling out dinosaur bones by the bucketfuls there. Absolutely. And so this is where, like you said, there was a lot of, you know, people trying to make friends and get exclusive rights or hiding where they were finding these because we were finding new species pretty regularly. And there was some bone pilfering going on as well for (laughs) not science. Yes. I think that's an understatement. (laughs) Um, So dinosaurs were just being discovered again, discovered in air quotes, you know, ancient peoples knew about these bones long before these guys came along in the late 1800s, but they're the information about dinosaurs was being disseminated in a large scale fashion. And so these fossil hunters were just nuts, snapping up land, trying to get these exclusive rights, you know, charging people to go on their land, which is not uncommon today. There are many places that you get charged to go on just to, just with the promise of potentially finding a fossil, right? And um, so this Garden City, or Garden Park area, just north of Canaan City, there are, I found this one website that outlined seven quarries (laughs) just within this area. Yeah, and I mean, geologically, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point, that that whole area is really interesting and a surprising confluence of geologic events. It really is. Um, <laughs> I had to do this cheesy ad for our OU field camp, but that's it. I said, you know, it's the ultimate outdoor laboratory because it really is. There's all kinds of volcanics out there. It's this weird embayment, which is kind of this bite that's taken out of the sort of Rocky Mountain liniment. It's a strange little area. Um, you have on one side of Canyon City, you have 10,000 feet of shale. On the other side, all of it's gone because of faulting associated with the Rockies. Really weird. So obviously, even before the Rockies were there, it was also really, really exciting. Um, And so we mentioned these two Bone War guys because two of the really famous quarries in the area are named for them. So there's the Marsfelch Quarry and the Cope Lucas Quarry. And both of these... (laughs) <laughs> which I think it's funny that the, you know, the academics from out east get to be first on this when it's actually Felch and Lucas that owned the land. Right. <laughs> they contracted with these guys, and these guys would dig up the dinosaur bones and got taught how to take care of the bones. And so they were constantly doing this while Marsh and Cope were back in the northeast 
fighting it out in, you know, the Academy of Science national meetings and things like that at that time. But these are both really large and prolific quarries, um, like I said, along with many others that are still active in that area. So these quarries were where we found some of the first allosaurs and ankylosaurs. Right. Uh, there's tons of stegosaurs. And so I say stegosaurs, not stegosaurus, because there's all different kinds of stegosaurs. And that's the Colorado State fossil, in fact. Um, but then there's also the big sauropods that I love. I don't know why. I love them. Um, <laughs> like Brachiosaurus, Camerosaurus, Apatosaurus, and Brontosaurus. And yeah, he's back. Brontosaurus <laughs> is, is an actual dinosaur now. Oh, I did not know yeah. that, that reclassification had happened. Yes, yeah, it had. There was some mix-up about some fossil head, and it turns out Brontosaurus is actually a real thing, so I'm very excited about that. Hmm. <laughs> so it was, it was really cool. I mean, the Morrison is really cool in the fact that you see all these other little fossils, but you also see, you know, these huge plant eaters and then the huge things that eat the plant eaters, right? That's a big deal. And you can find these all throughout the Morrison. And I mean... All the things that you talk about in Montana, you know, there's lots of dinosaur digs up there. A lot of that is in the Morrison. And this is just a really prolific formation if what you're into is um, dinosaurs. Well, and, I mean, I obviously, because I keep bringing it back up, I like the trackways. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a, uh, a particularly interesting one. I don't know that I could describe it very well versus just driving there, maybe. It's only been pushing a decade but <laughs> where you, you could see uh, two sets of tracks coming together and one set of tracks leaving because somebody had lunch exactly <laughs> man i love those um and all over canyon city if you're ever in that area there is a uh, skyline drive and it's cut up through the morrison and there's a trackway there and it's what you were talking about earlier john where you're looking actually at the underside of the trackway and it's really cool because you can see these huge footprints and they're by these weird triceratops looking things. I'm not a paleontologist. I'm more <laughs> worried about the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> they look like triceratops. I don't know if they're related. I'm guessing so. Um, and it's neat because, okay, so that's like a, a city park, right? You know, it's very, you can't go up there or anything, but you can see these trackways in the Morrison and other places. So you'll just be out hiking around you're like oh look there's a big old dinosaur footprint and that's awesome yeah just to do the mental exercise of going back 150 million years and seeing a giant animal standing there right there yeah right Ex exactly because <laughs> all these trackways you know you can sit there and touch them and you can stick your foot in them and see how big they are um dinosaur national monument there in utah that is also in the morrison formation so, yeah, it's, it was flat and gross and hot, and dinosaurs were everywhere. <laughs> so other than the, the flat and dinosaurs part, similar to today in the summer when you're out there at field camp. Right, exactly. <laughs> Except hopefully no one sees my footprints meeting something else's and then something else walking away. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there are bears, Shannon. I know, big ones. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, so I figured that would be kind of a cool, a cool uh, little excursion into dinosaur time. And I think we will definitely follow up on the Bone Wars. Um, I think I have that book on reserve at the library. So when I get it, we can talk about it after that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, one thing that is sort of surprising is that all of this stuff has survived that 150 million years because we generally think about changes in the landscape or tectonic processes being relatively slow, you know, geologic pace. Right. Mm -hmm. But we have a listener fun paper this week that is going to change your mind on some of that, I think. (laughs) So it's time for everybody's favorite segment, (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Yeah, that was an excellent segue. I actually don't like things like this because I like to feel that stuff does happen at this literally glacial pace, right? You can make these assumptions about 150 million years ago, but then you see things like this paper Steve's in it and you're like, ugh, how can we ever preserve anything? Yeah, so this is <laughs> Gravitational Sliding of Mount Edna Massif Along a Sloping Basement by Murray et al. Uh, this was a really cool paper. Uh, I usually don't like modeling papers, but this one was super well-written, I'm going to say. Well, and it wasn't just modeling. It was observational yes. modeling and experimental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really neat. And it's it's just what it sounds like, right? So Mount Etna, this big volcano, been going off pretty frequently, right, is uh, moving because it's a big volcano. Of course it's going to move around, right? But it's even scarier than that because it's not just moving because of the magma associated with it. It's moving because of its position along the sedimentary basement rock, right? Yeah, and so, you know, volcanoes, which I have realized that we have not given due time on this show (laughs) somehow. I know. I said in my Earth history class so many times, volcanoes are everything. I I don't think I realized it until I taught this class this year. How important volcanoes really are. Yeah. So, you know, you get this big pile of stuff, to use a geophysicist term. (laughs) (laughs) So you get this big pile of stuff, and then you carry all your car batteries up it and put GPS stations on it. That's direct. (laughs) And what you see is that as magma begins to inflate the volcano, you would expect the GPS stations to push radially outward from the center, roughly what we would call axisymmetric, or the same all the way around. Mm-hmm. And you would also expect, even if there was no more magma, you would expect it to have that same pattern due to gravitational slump. Right, because if you, you know, pour a pile of sand, right, it should essentially be symmetrical. Well, and a lot of the slump, too, is this is steep, compared to what it should be. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, that is So <laughs> if it's it's the geologic time equivalent of you pour pancake batter, thick pancake batter, and it spreads out under its own weight. Mm-hmm. This happens with ice sheets. It also happens with volcanoes. So both of those things say we should have axisymmetric movement outward from the center. Uh, but Mount Edna is what happens when you make your pancake on the oven in my old apartment that wasn't level. <laughs> Exactly. And thanks to a ridiculous amount of GPS sensors in this area, (laughs) we know that this is happening. (laughs) And this has to be a maddening data set to work through because 
So currently they used 100 benchmarks, which GPS stations are expensive, so they don't leave them at many of these locations. Mm-hmm. Right. They go out there with their differential GPS system, and they put it on this little metal plate that's the benchmark where everybody else goes and puts their little GPS system. <laughs> and they measure the position of that little plate. And you, you can find these surprising number of places if you start looking for them. Uh, yeah, it's actually super creepy because you're like, oh, where did that come from? And what's that used for when you see this random thing that you, when you start looking for them? Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you'll be walking around uh, parks or even in some town areas, you might see these little brass knobs embedded in concrete or in the rock. That's a benchmark. Uh, or at least most of them are. Yeah. So, <laughs> I have so many pictures of those random brass things in the middle of, like, you know, here we are in Seattle. Here's this weird benchmark on the side of the road, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there have been 200 benchmarks put on Etna since 81. But <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> uh, the volcano keeps destroying them. And so you have this weird, discontinuous <laughs> data set of we had these and then they got buried with lava and then we put some more out and those worked for a while and they got buried with lava oh i love it and so they said that um during the period covered by the present paper which was like 2001 through 12 i think there were 20 new benchmarks that were put out just from being destroyed from over that time period so yeah Yeah. that's crazy (laughs) so they measured these benchmarks and they looked at inter-eruption times so when we expect it to be doing this axisymmetric expanding, and they saw a very clear pattern of expanding, but not symmetrically at all. Right. Um, I loved the figures in this paper. They were so clear and easy to read, and they were fantastic. I don't know how you felt about them. I, I was a big fan. Yeah, I figured and you were. And they do a great job of displaying uncertainty in an unobtrusive but honest way. Yes, yes, exactly, which they also explain in the text very well, too. Um, and so, yeah, it's not symmetric at all. It's skewed, and it's really skewed sort of to the east, as you're looking at Mount Etna, um, towards the ocean. And so the, the movement is not radial at all. And so this is where they have to figure out why is this happening? This is where some of the modeling comes in. Right. And so they do some basic modeling. And if you think about a radial expanding pile, but it's sliding downhill at the same time that it's expanding on the part going downhill, that, that vector, that motion would be much larger, but about the same direction. And on the part uphill, it would be almost completely canceled. Right. It's it's a fabulous, it's just vector addition and subtraction. It's fabulously I laid mean, out, right? Figure 4D looks like something from a Vector Calc 101 <laughs> textbook. It sure does. <laughs> uh, it absolutely does. Like, I almost I got my little pencil and was like, okay, I'm ready to do that, <laughs> that problem. <laughs> You put the vector head to tail, and then you draw. <laughs> yep. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> that was beautiful. But, I mean, the cool part of this was is that once you do that calculation, it almost exactly fits the observed movement of Mount Etna. Yeah, which is pretty crazy that a relatively straightforward and simple model uh, explains so much of the data. Mm-hmm. Right. 
exactly. Um, I love the little, <laughs> I even love their little, it looks like a PowerPoint. I'm sure it's actually done in something professional. <laughs> um, model of this, their sandbox model. Yeah, so <laughs> I would say it's probably an illustrator figure. But... I think it probably is, but <laughs> you could totally do that in PowerPoint. <laughs> so this this is where, uh, so I did experimental work uh, for my grad school work, and we tried to make these pretty complex mechanical models of faults. Mm -hmm. right. This is where I love tectonic <laughs> models in the lab because they're so simple. Exactly. And they do such great. a good job. They do, exactly. And so it's just a, it's a box. I say sandbox because that's what sedimentologists use. But I mean, that's kind of what this is, right? They've got this silicon putty layer that's representing these quaternary sandstone um, that sediments that Mount Etna's on. And then on top, they've got this sand and then they have this little cone and basically they just tilt it and see what happens. So you play in a sandbox, you build your volcano. Exactly. And then you stick a book under it. And then yep. you put it under some particle image velocimetry gear mm -hmm. and do some post-processing. And lo and behold, you get something that could be mistaken for the actual graph of data. Exactly. Like, man, you know, these people had to be so excited when all this came together. Well, and let's see. How long was it that they let this? Yeah, so 15 minutes of displacement. But you gotta remember, it's sand, not right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in 15 minutes, you have a result, and it looks really good, and you can check this part of your paper off. Exactly. That was only a one degree slope, too. I was actually kind of impressed at how much that stuff moved. Yeah, I was too. I was surprised. I was surprised at the amount of gravitational spreading that you saw in that short amount of time as well. Yeah, yeah. 15. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. This was. As so many of the papers, I feel like, were like, that's very elegant. I thought this was really good. I thought the figures were fantastic. I enjoyed reading the way this paper was written. And I thought it was a really cool um, sort of drawing it all together, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the important outcomes of this was that Mount Edna is sliding at about 1.4 centimeters a year. That's a lot. That is quite a bit, and that could have some serious implications for the future slope stability. Right, which of is the important because people live there. Exactly. <laughs> and this is not the only place that this happens. So, Mexico and Reunion Island, there are multiple volcanoes that have this exact behavior, and some have had this large scale slope failure. Right, and you can see in there. So, you know, they're doing this recording during the inter-eruptive times, but you can see the displacement in their data during these eruptive times, right? So how far stuff moves um, when you have this trigger. And that's a big deal when you're talking about slope failures. And they talk a lot about the Heart Mountain Slide in Wyoming, which um, one of my good friends did his master's thesis on. And so this is a huge, arguably the largest, um, event like this where you have this huge slope failure and 
<laughs> it happened on a relatively shallow slope, which is why it's so scary, and it moved fast enough that it actually created these chemical reactions in the limestone, and this is in the Heart Mountain slide, where it still burns you to this day. Like, it makes caustic chemicals because the limestone moved so quickly. Yeah, so that's an important factor, and they also note that Etna's very active, but if it were to start deflating, so instead of inflating with magna and then erupting and then immediately starting to inflate again, if there were ever a period of deflation, this would further increase the slope stability because now you have the mountain sort of pulling down and it's still sliding away from itself. Right, exactly. And I mean, you look at that heart mountain and the kind of um, volumes of rock you're talking there and the things that that rock did, how fast it moved over this very slow... Uh, or over this very um, not steep slope, you know, this stuff is terrible. There's a lot of people in this area, and you get one of those triggers that do that. That's That could be really devastating. It could. So this was a, uh, like you said, I guess an elegant yeah. paper. I it was so. a nice combination of, I thought, a paper that just had observations could have stood on its own. A paper with the numerical modeling and the lab experiment probably could have stood on its own. But having all three in one paper uh, made a pretty nice little story. I bet that it was really fun to do, too. I think <laughs> we all get stuck in our little niches, and this one tied it all together really fun. And you know that they totally had all kinds of fun playing with that sandbox model. <laughs> well, then you get to helicopter around Mount Etna and measure a bunch of benchmarks. And that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Well, thanks, Steve, for sending that in. That was a great find in the Bulletin of Volcanology. It is an open paper, so we will put the link in the show notes. You can get the PDF and read it for yourself. Yay. If you have a fun paper that you would like us to discuss, ideas on exactly what you'll find in the Morrison Formation on summer vacation, <laughs> or your own sandbox model of Mount Etna in your kitchen, we would love to hear your results. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> Send us those pictures. We know you have them, listeners. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, you can always find us in the softwareunderground.org and our Slack channel, the Don't Panic channel, and please support us on Patreon. Thank you for those of us who already have, and we're patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.